All right. Well, good evening. I've got a lot of strange, I've had a lot of strange looks since Sunday. This random guy from Louisiana. I've had several people tonight say, I didn't know who you were on Sunday when you stood up and did life together. So here I am to uh, introduce myself uh, again. Um, my name is uh, Justin McCain. Uh, I hail from uh, the great state of Louisiana, but now I reside, my wife and I, uh, and our two little girls reside here in, oh, actually, we're renting a house in Cordova. Um, and Dr. Young uh, called me a few weeks ago and said, hey, uh, I want them. To, I want people to know you. So why don't you teach on Wednesday night for me? And I said, "Are you sure about that?" <laughs> and uh, so I'm grateful to Dr. Young for uh, giving me a chance to to share about a passage that uh, was greatly influential in my own conversion. And uh, and so I want to share a little bit with you tonight about that. So if you have a copy of God's Word, uh, go to Ephesians chapter two. Um, we're going to be chapter two, verses one to ten. More than likely, we're just going to deal with uh, verses six to se- uh, maybe get through the first seven uh, this evening, because there is a ton going on in Ephesians chapter two. As most of you, uh, a lot of you know, I've really enjoyed uh, uh, getting to know Chris Luke. A lot of you guys know Chris Luke, um, and he's doing an outstanding uh, job while walking through Ephesians with uh, the twenties and thirties. Uh, right now on Sundays, uh, on Sunday mornings, and uh, kind of inspired me to go to Ephesians and be reminded of my own uh, story a little bit. Um, I I got saved in college. I went to LSU, as you see. I'm um, proud of that. <laughs> I'm a, a proud alum of Louisiana State University. My wife, Lauren, who is right back there, wave, Lauren. Hey, there she is. Say hi. Um, she. Uh, is, has two degrees from LSU, so she's doubly as annoying as me when it comes to LSU. So, <laughs> no, I was just kidding. But she has uh, two degrees from there. We met um, at LSU. through. I was a college minister uh, at uh, Struma Baptist Church. Uh, she was coming into LSU. By God's grace, uh, we uh, connect, reconnected about four years later, and we're married in 2009. Uh, she has an amazing testimony of God's grace in her life. She, I, I know she would love to share it with you sometime, but... Um, I came, my background, uh, I grew up uh, with parents who share the gospel with me a lot. Uh, grew up in church, um, made a couple of decisions for Christ, walked the aisle, didn't want to go to hell, kind of worried about, worried about that. Um, but uh, when I got into college, I was, I was faced with the truth of the gospel, um, and if, and specifically in Ephesians, where a guy was uh, willing to tell me, is this what your life looks like? Did you know that you were dead in your trespasses before a holy God. I didn't know that. And I was a little offended <laughs> by that. And uh, and grateful to, to him. I'm still great friends with him today. Um, but I'm grateful for God's, uh, God's work. So if you're at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, let's read it. Um, like I said, we're probably just going to get through the first six, seven verses tonight. But I'm going to read through verse 10 just for uh, perspective's sake. And you... We're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But here's the best news, verse 4. But God... 
being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, uh, and he raised us up with him, seated uh, and, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, for which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your word. And uh, God, just pray that um, we can all walk out of here today, because uh, not because of anything I say, but just, God, because of the, the immeasurable and unsearchable riches of Christ. And I pray that we can walk out of here, out of here today in awe of what you have done in and through Christ. Um, God, we love you. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. How many... Uh, People in here are familiar with the show uh, Lost. Lost fans in here? Anything? Uh, great. I was really nervous about that because it's been off the air for a few years. And uh, when Lauren and I were engaged, we really we watched Lost um, pretty much every day for like I don't know how long was it? Uh, six weeks. I mean, literally, we watched the whole show from beginning to end in about six weeks. It was really a sickness. But do you remember a guy uh, in Lost named Jeremy Bentham? Anybody? Anybody a little bit? Jeremy Bentham um, is a name familiar to Lost because it was an alias of John Locke. Now, believe it or not, Jeremy Bentham, um, as which was the case with Lost a lot, um, uh, he was a real guy. He was actually a, uh, a 17th century philosopher. He lived, uh, he died around 1832. Uh, and he was the, considered the father or the founder of utilitarianism, which is the greatest happiness principle. Um, he was a really... Really strange guy, to be honest with you. He uh, was really strange. When he died in 1832, um, in his will, he left his fortune, which is hundreds of millions of dollars, to uh, a London hospital. But there was one condition. All right, so be, be with me here. He was a weird guy, okay? He had one condition. He asked that for every board meeting of this hospital, that he wanted to be there. Hey. <laughs> Hey, Jonathan Todd laughed too, so I'm, I'm, I tested it on him before this. He wanted to be there. He wanted to be present at every board meeting. And not just like, oh, yeah, I want to be there in spirit. No, I want to be there. So for a hundred years, they rolled his bones and they sat him up. They put him in 17th century garb. They, they gave him actually a wax head. I know this is weird. And in the minutes of every board meeting, he wanted this line, which read, Mr. Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. <laughs> and this was a joke of his philosophy, and of course he never voted because he was dead in 1932. But this is a good reminder of our condition before Jesus, before coming to know Christ, that we were literally dead. We were present, but not voting. And so we come to this passage today that shows us when we were spiritually dead, but God made us alive in Christ. We were present but not voting until God gave us life. So thanks for bearing with me in that story. I just thought it was relevant, and I loved loss. So, it, it, um, so if you look with me in the passage, the paragraph uh, is actually in Greek is actually two sentences. So verse 1 to 7 is one sentence, and verses 8 to 10 is another sentence. 
Now, the subject of the first sentence is actually God, and you look at verse 4, and the main verb is, is made alive. And it is a marvelous passage uh, explaining what God has done for believers by his grace. And so uh, this passage is related to the previous section. If you look back at verses uh, 19 and 20, and where God des- uh, descri- describes God's mighty work in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. So literally, it's tied to the, the fact that there's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. So I want to highlight three truths about God's work um, kind of bringing us life. So yeah, if you're taking notes, awesome. If not, no worries. Uh, I can get, get the notes to you if you need them. Uh, but the first part we're going to look at is verses 1 to 3. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. Did you know that? I remember in college, as I shared earlier, somebody shared that with me, and it was incredibly offensive to tell me that apart from Christ, before Christ, that I was spiritually dead. And Paul first begins uh, this passage with, his pre, with our pre-Christian past. And, and the picture is not good. Is that the case for you guys before Christ? Was the picture good? We're going to learn what the picture looked like. And verse 1 begins with, and you. So who's, who is he talking to here? Anybody got to have a guess? Who's Paul talking to here? And you. He's talking to all of us, that's right. But he's specifically talking to here, the Gentiles. And then he says in verse 3a, all of us. And then, like the rest of us of mankind. So basically, Paul throws the Gentiles under the bus first, right? And then he throws all of us under the bus, which is, the, which is actually the good news of the gospel, that none of us bring anything to the table. If there's one of us in this room this morning that brought anything to the table for salvation, then we're doomed. He threw everybody under the bus in this passage. Paul is not about to describe... He's not describing some uh, degrading segment of society or some cannibalistic tribe somewhere. He is talking about everybody. He's talking about everyone. And this is the biblical diagnosis of our, the diagnosis of our sinful nature. Paul shows us who we were before Christ with three descriptions, okay? So stay with me. First, he says in, um, in, in verse 1, we were dead. He said, you were dead. And some of you are saying, well, what is it? It may, it may not make any sense. We may agree in here, but I've had the argument before when I talk about this. Like, what are you talking about? I'm walking around. I put my pants on. I drove to work today. I'm not dead. And it's, it's, not a, it's a spiritually dead. It's a, like we're like spiritual zombies before Christ. We're literally dead men walking without, without realizing our, our condition apart from Christ. This was our previous state in here. I, I know most of us in here are professing believers in here, but... We were literally alienated from God. And notice what Paul says in Ephesians 4.18. He says, we were alienated from the life of God. That means we were dead. We were literally cut off from the, the one that gives us life, the vine that we learned in the illustration from the Gospels. We were literally cut off from the life of God. Now, Paul repeats it later in the text in his amazement of what God has done. Even, in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. And I'm thinking about the amazement Paul must, must have felt. I mean, think about the life of Paul and how amazed he must have been at the grace of God. I mean, think about, I mean, for someone to write, I mean, he was blown away about what God had done in his own life. That's why he was so passionate about getting the gospel right to the churches that, uh, to the churches that he had planted so Paul repeats it later in the text in his amazement 
in, ver- in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. When, and Paul says that we are, when he says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, trespasses draw atten- draws attention to more like more acts of sin. And then sins is more of a comprehensive count of human evils. Just to- the totality of the-, the evilness of human beings. We were dead, committing transgressions in a sinful state, literally hopeless. Um, an illustration of this is found in, uh, in Luke chapter 15. Uh, this is where we find, everybody know Luke, Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. And it's interesting what the, um, what the father says at the end of that passage. He's, he forgives his son when his son's coming back. He had, the son was eating with the pigs. And, and, but when the son comes running back to the father and comes home to his gracious, forgiving father, the father says what? He says something really interesting. My son was dead, but now he's alive. I love that imagery. So now, now this is the complete opposite, right, of what the world is going to tell you. This is the complete opposite of what the world is going to tell us about our condition as, as human beings. The world tells us that we are basically good, and if we just believe in ourselves that we can do anything, right? Pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and go on and kind of get it done. Believe in yourself. That's what the world's going to tell us. And that's where we, that's the rub. That's the rub when, we going, when we're hopefully intentionally sharing the gospel when you tell somebody that they are totally depraved and unable to know God and they're spiritually in a place where they can't know God, that's offensive. But the gospel is a stumbling block. Jesus said that himself. So when you're discouraged from sharing the gospel, because what if they, you know, what if they won't believe? They're not going to believe without God's help. They're not going to believe. And that's what Paul is trying to get across. Um, so let's continue on. Uh, while, spirit, while a spiritually dead person may indeed do uh, amazing things, I mean, think about it. They're an image bearer of God. So yeah, I mean, people who don't believe in God, who don't follow Christ, they make beautiful works of art. They play sports exceptionally well. But right before this, I was getting texts from a friend of mine. I love baseball. And he was sending me their updates to the Rangers-Blue Jays game. I mean, these guys are just, it's an amazing game. If you, any of you love baseball, just go back and look at it later. But like guys in baseball, they can do amazing. They can hit a 95-9-hour pitch and hit it 400 feet. That's incredible. I mean, they can do humanitarian work. But he or she can do nothing spiritually because they aren't connected to the vine, the, live, the giver of life. Um, Ephesians uh, 2, 1 to 3 couldn't be clearer for us. It is, a, I mean, our, our condition apart from Christ is just a sad, hopeless predicament. We are not morally good. We're not even neutral. A lot of times people try to say, hey, we're just neutral. We're not good. We're not bad. No, we are not neutral. We are, mo- we are, we're not mostly dead. We are dead. And we need a miracle that only God can perform. After uh, seminary, when I graduated seminary, uh, um, I worked as a hospice chaplain for about three years. And I always get this look when people tell me, when I tell people that I did that, like, oh man, how did you do that? And I, and um, it was tough work, but I mean, it was an amazing opportunity to share the gospel with people who were knocking at death's door, literally. And I remember one time walking up walking up to a house, and uh, the nurse met me at the door. And, and a lot of times what I would do is when, when they were, we would get that call in the middle of the night that someone is about to pass, and I would go as fast as I could to share the gospel. And I knew maybe that would get me in trouble at some point. And I got to the door, and the nurse said, he's almost dead. And I thought, what, that's, a, such a strange, that's such a strange statement. To say. And, to, and so I remember getting in there and thinking about how, how that is just antithetical to what we were before God. We were and are dead if we're not in Christ. 
So let's continue on. We were disobedient, right? So we were disobedient. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Paul goes on to describe how we disobeyed God like our first parents, Adam and Eve. Instead of following God, we followed three evil forces. We followed the world. Um, he says, following the course of this world. The unsaved person is, is controlled by the world's influences. I remember that was me in college. I was controlled by the world's influences. That's all I wanted. That's what I desired. I wanted to be known and be famous and, and want people to know me. And one time, I, I, this is kind of embarrassing to admit, this, this is how bad it was for me. One time, uh, a student came up to me. I didn't know who she was. I was wearing an LSU baseball shirt. And um, she asked me, are you? Are you, do you play baseball for LSU? And I straight up lied. I said, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I, wanted, you know, I wanted that. I wanted, I wanted what that felt like. I mean, man, to be known and be, and, and that's just, I was chasing after the desires of the world. Paul described it this way elsewhere, uh, elsewhere in, the, in the 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. (laughs) That's pretty clear. 1 John 2, 15 to 17 describes this, quote, world system, uh, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and, the pro- and pride and possessions. Um, Paul speaks of being, in Galatians 1, he speaks of being delivered from this present evil age. I know a lot of times in the evenings when I'm watching the news, I, I wish I wouldn't. I just feel the weight of this present evil age. Do you feel that sometimes? It's the weight of this. That's where we live. That's where we are right now in this present evil age. Like the Ephesian churches, we live here at Gracie Van. We live in a sinful world that people are hell bound without God's help. And it's my, my hope and prayer as a church that we will, we will in, in, intentionally, Kevin and I talk a lot about intentionality when it comes to Grace Athletics. What we will intentionally as a church interject ourselves in the lives of people who are hell bound without Christ. <clears throat> Let's continue on. We followed Satan. So we followed our, the world. We followed Satan. He's, and Paul says, the prince of, uh, of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. Ephesians speaks more about principalities and power, uh, and power than most uh, New Testament letters. And it has a lot to do with just the, the climate around Ephesus. There's a lot of worship, uh, um, uh, king worship and, and, and different than God, other, other God worship, idol worship. And so... Um, when Paul says ruler or prince in the Old, uh, ruler or prince in the Old Testament was a term that was used for a national or local tribal leader. But in the Gospels, if you look in Matthew chapter 9, 12, Mark 3, Luke 11, in the Gospels, Satan is the ruler of demons. That's the way he's described. If you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he's even called God, little g, of this age. And he uses the word air here. In the ancient world, the air formed the intermediate space between heaven and earth where evil uh, spirits dwell. But here it refers to the place of activity of Satan. It's just a reminder that Satan is constantly chasing after us and wanting us to knock us off course and knock our, our vision away from Christ, away from the gospel. That's what we have to be aware of. That's why we have to constantly... I was having a conversation in the back earlier about preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. Because if we don't do that, we're going we're gonna to get off course. 
So, and he also says, at work in the sons of disobedience. Not, not all are possessed by Satan, but they do live in a world of darkness in which Satan holds sway. He lays out the bait and sinful people take it, disobeying God. He mentions this phrase in uh, chapter 5, verse 6 as well, uh, after describing sins such as sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, foolish talk. And these are some of the habitual actions of the sons of disobedience. Sexual immorality is demonic, and so is covetousness, and so is impurity and corrupt talk and anger. Uh, I just heard uh, Chris Luke uh, talk about that a few weeks ago, and man, it was a, just a real eye-opener, that the way we kind of weigh different kind of sins. But these are, the, these are on the same level of sexual immorality is what Paul is saying. And so you say, Justin, I thought Satan was defeated. And yes, he was. He was defeated. Christ said it was finished. It is finished. Um, but just like a rebel militia, Satan is going, he's going to go down fighting to bring people down. And so uh, just a reminder to continue, as, uh, to continue to preach the gospel to yourself, to your family, and to those, those believers around you. Um, he says in verse 3a, if you look down with me, we followed our sinful desires and passions of the flesh and desires of the body and mind. Paul adds that we were slaves to these passions, these desires, and to the lusts of our fallen sinful nature. If you remember in uh, Romans 8, uh, Paul says this, those who live in the flesh cannot please God. These passions are described in Galatians 5, 16 to 21 and elsewhere as anger, sexual sin, idolatry, sorcery, jealousy, rivalries, ascensions, drunkenness. And even, even in Jeremiah 17, it says this, the heart of man is deceitfully above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So is Paul getting carried away here? I mean, is Paul kind of, you know, I've, I've actually heard this argument before. Paul's kind of overreacting a little bit. I don't think so. I think our condition is this bad, and that's why he is so urgent in his message. Yes, our condition is that bad. While humans bear the image of God, and sin has not destroyed the image of God, we are radically depraved and unable to come to God apart from a new birth. Our behavior is explained uh, by, by all three of these influences, the world, Satan, and the flesh. And they all play a part in the sinful condition of man. No one should try to make one the exclusive problem. I see that sometimes. We try to make one of those the exclusive issue. But they're all together the issue. Each contribute. And theologically, Paul is describing what we know as what's called total depravity, Right? or total inability. Morally, we are not capable of responding to God apart from grace. Um, we have been in, literally infected with a, with a disease called sin. I spent uh, my 30th birthday in India um, sharing the gospel in northern India. If you come into my office, I have a map of India, and you, I can kind of show you where it is, but it's a place called Himajal Pradesh. And everywhere we went, each village, each house, Everybody, every one of them had an, an idea of what total depravity was. They had an idea that, man, I am messed up. I am not right. I'm, something's wrong with me. I'm a sinner. Everybody knew that. But nobody, literally, after we probably shared, shared the gospel with over 600 people, not one of them had ever heard the gospel of grace and the gospel of Christ. Not one. Not one. I hope that moves you. I got, you know, listen to Jonathan talk about going and training these pastors uh, in Africa. What an incredible opportunity for our church to be involved in the front lines of getting the gospel right. Because he told me this week that how much the prosperity gospel is prevalent there. 
And it just kills me to hear that. So finally, we, were, uh, we see in verse 3, we were doomed. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here is the end of it all. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, sons of disobedience. In verse 2, we are now children destined for wrath. And in verse 3, for wrath in verse 3, it was what we rightly deserve. Our spiritual status could not be more tragic or hopeless. And here's the deal. We are justly under the judgment of God. We are justly under the judgment of God apart from Christ. He is right to condemn us of our sins. God is holy and he does not sit idly by. And I, I, many think that the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is, is just a nice God. He's like a Mr. Rogers God. He's gonna, he jumps on the train, he slips the loafers on. He, he, he just wants us to come alongside him and join him and, 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 and to never, never land. And, and my thought is no. What we do have right now, we have a period of patience where God is being patient with those who are not in Christ. The door of mercy is open wide right now and we can come into this grace and be saved. But the wrath of God that is coming is worse than anything we see in the Old Testament. And that's why I hope we are going to be a passionate people who agree in Gracie Van to warn people about this. To warn people that God is patient but he is also holy and just and hates sin. It is a, and it says in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says in uh, Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. God will act in a righteous manner, not an, un, not an unrighteous revenge like my, my one and a half year old where she just falls on the ground and throws a fit. No, God is righteous in his anger and his revenge. He will, he will punish sin and sinners justly. And so for, for the Christian, hopefully most of us in here are, are believers and followers of Christ, God's wrath has been poured out not on us, but on the Savior. And praise God for that. Jesus in the, in the garden drank the cup, which is a metaphor that describes the wrath of God. He drank the cup so we didn't have to. So my hope is if you're not a believer in here, trust Christ as your substitute or fear him as your judge. Paul draws our attention to, to the depth of depravity in order to magnify the mercy and grace of God in saving us. Just like uh, if you took a diamond and you put a, a, a black backdrop behind it it's in, in, in the same kind of way. He, he does so with the sweetest of words in the Bible. We, we get to what Jonathan Todd said, told me earlier, but God. God's gracious initiative and sovereign action stands in wonderful contrast of verses 1 to to 3. So let's go on to verses 4 to 7. With Christ, we are spiritually alive. But God, what words, what words, what an amazing set of words right there. But God, when we are lifeless, I just gave you the bad news, right? When we are lifeless, hopeless, and under condemnation, God came to our rescue. He came to your rescue. And notice how Paul describes here in verses 4 to 7 the character of God and the work of God, and then we'll wrap it up, okay? God's character. What prompted God's salvation was his mercy, love, grace, and kindness. Paul can, in the same sentence, affirm the wrath of God and also the love of God. So in the same sentence, he affirms the wrath of God who hates sin, who's holy, and and he also affirms the love of God. In fact, you can't understand one without the other. You can't. It's impossible. Notice the description of God's goodness in these verses. 
It says this in verse 4. He is rich in mercy. Not just merciful. He is rich in mercy. The, uh, the Old Testament describes God as, an, as abounding in mercy in Psalm 103. And that he delights in mercy in Micah 7.18. Uh, the word in Hebrew is a word called chest or chesed. refers to God's loyal love. And God's mercy is also free. We see that in Romans 9. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So we have God is rich in mercy in verse 4. He also says God is a God of great love. Paul writes, God demonstrated his love for us in this while we were sinners, dead, depraved, and doomed. Christ died for us. So he's rich in mercy. He's great in love. He's full of grace. Being made alive when we are dead is all of grace. The undeserved favor of God. Twelve times uh, this word is mentioned in Ephesians. And in chapter 1, Paul says that our salvation was to the praise of his glorious grace. That's incredible. So he's rich in mercy. He's a God of great love, full of grace. And then finally, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. For all eternity, we will be recipients of his grace. Literally trophies of his grace. Not that we brought anything to the table, but literally trophies of what God has done for us. He has displayed an infinite, uh, his infinite, infinite riches of grace and his kindness to us. So we get to see God's character. And on, in verses 5 to 7, we also see God's work. Notice next what God did in his mercy and love and kindness. God made us alive in Christ. So the, the main verb which governs this paragraph is made us alive it's introduced. Like, you remember the story of uh, Jesus and going to Lazarus. Just like Jesus who came to Lazarus' tomb, he spoke to Lazarus specifically. You ever notice that? He spoke to Lazarus. He said his name. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And there are some commentators that, that, that I read uh, kind of preparing for this said, if Jesus wouldn't have said uh, Lazarus' name specifically, the whole graveyard would have gotten up. I mean, God called Lazarus by name and said, Lazarus, come forth. And so here what we have is what theologians call the outer call. So here right now, the outer call, I am sharing the gospel with you. I hope if you're not here and a follower of Christ and never respond to the gospel and repent, this is the outer call. Like, come and feast on Christ. But also there's a more specific inner call in which the, in which the Holy Spirit does in hearts. And those of you who are Christians have sensed this. God was dealing with you when, you when you were converted, when God converted you to Christ. Paul experienced this call, uh, this call to come to Christ, and you can look at it in verse 15 uh, of, of Ephesians 1. Remember, you remember one night, a religious man came to Jesus with questions, a man named Nicodemus. And what did he tell Nicodemus? You, you must be born again. He was literally telling Nicodemus, you have no life apart from the giver of life. So both in verse 5, verse five in Ephesians 1 and verse 8, we see the, t- the phrase, by grace you have been saved. And it is in the, in, the perf- uh, in the perfect tense, emphasizing the abiding consequences of conversion. So to really capture what, uh, what Paul is trying to say here in the perfect tense, uh, I've heard it put like this. I didn't come up with this, but I like to use it because it makes sense to me. You have been saved, which is in the past tense. You are being saved in the present, which is in the present tense. And then you will be saved in the future, future sense, in the glorification part of salvation. 
Um, one story that I came across uh, thinking, about, uh, thinking about this passage and how, how God literally takes dead hearts and makes them alive. I, I, I read a story one time uh, of one of my favorite uh, preachers, a guy named George Whitfield. And during the 17th century, uh, during the Great Awakening, he was preaching. And in uh, Whitfield's journal, he tells about a time in which a man came to hear him preach and literally filled his pockets full of rocks to go and kill him, to try to stone him to death or at least hurt him bad. And the guy, um, the guy came up to Whitfield after the sermon and literally right in front of him emptied his pockets and told, and told Whitfield this, and I quote, I came, to, I came here to hear, uh, to hear you with pockets full of, uh, full of stones to break your head. But God, there's that phrase again, but God through your preaching has broken my heart. What an incredible uh, visual of what God does in the life of a, of a, of a dead broken heart. God gave that man life through the gospel. And here's, here's the truth. The gospel is always at work. The gospel can melt the ice of the heart or harden the clay of the heart. But the gospel is always at work. When I was uh, converted, I had affections. And when I got saved, I just had affections for things that I'd never had, had before. I, I was literally in a Bible study five days a week because I wanted to know more. Um, I began reading, reading books with no pictures. You know, <laughs> I, I was just new. I just felt, I just, I just had new affections. And so I hope every time we hear the gospel preached and our affections just rise for Christ and we, we are inspired to go and make disciples of all nations. Um, I remember uh, this is the last story, and, uh, and I'll quit. In, in India, in that same trip, uh, we shared the gospel with a man who was a father of eight, and it was in this really remote village, and he had, uh, was really pretty hard towards us. Didn't really want us in his house, but he invited us in because his wife let us in. And so we were grateful for that. But his wife let us in, and we were sharing the gospel through a translator. And um, nothing really happened that day, but the, one of our pastors that we were connected with, a guy named Anil Sharma, uh, followed up with his family a few weeks after we left and sent, told me a story one time that, that uh, a few weeks after we left, that that guy, that guy was so hard towards the gospel, he had idols all over his house. Literally just little statues that it, it just made the whole room colorful. And he, took, he brought all those statues in a bag to Anil once he came the next time and literally in front of Anil smashed them all and said, my family will follow Christ. I mean, who? no man can do that. <laughs> That's all God. That's, and so it's just a reminder that God is at work. We just need to be faithful in, in sharing, uh, sharing the gospel, this, this hope-filled gospel. So I want to share uh, one, uh, one quote from, uh, from John Newton. And if you can identify with John Newton, I hope so. But he said this, uh, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how perfect and, and, and deficient I am. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off, put off morality and with, more, and with mortality of all sin and imperfection. Yet, yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was. A slave to sin and Satan. I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for 
um, opportunity to to study your word tonight and just be once again amazed um, at what you've done in in our lives. And um, God, forgive us when we are apathetic or too busy or fearful of of um, God where you're working in the lives of uh, of people all around us every day. Um, I pray that we will be a people here at Grace Evangelical Church that are serious about seeing people come to a a, a real um, just collision with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where they either the gospel either hardens their heart like clay or melts their heart like ice. God, we just we just hope for more and more stories like that to come out, and uh, as we scatter across this city. We're grateful for grace and for what Christ has done for us. These things we ask in his name. Amen.